This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today is Iman Jamal Rahman. He is a popular speaker on Islam, Sufi, spirituality, and interfaith relations. Uh, his latest book, Finding Peace Through Spiritual Practice, The Interfaith Amigos Guide to Personal social, and environmental healing. Uh, Jamal, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. It's my, my honor. Thank you so much. It's a joy. Uh, Jamal, uh, maybe we can begin with something of your personal background and how you came to uh, become an imam. Uh, I read on your website that you were born in Bangladesh. That's um, right. So two questions. One, was it already Bangladesh at the time, or was it East Pakistan? And when did you come to America? Well, actually, uh, when I was born, I was born in 1950. So it was, it was actually Pakistan. So you're right. right it was East Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I came to America in the early 1970s. Uh, I did part of my undergraduate at University of Oregon and my graduate study at University of California, Berkeley. And um, what was the path to your becoming an imam? You know, I come from a a tradition of uh, uh, spiritual healers and teachers. My paternal grandfather was a fairly well-known healer and teacher in northern Bengal. But my father chose to become a diplomat. Hmm. So he taught us the spirituality of Islam. So we are rooted in Islam. And also because he was a diplomat, he and my mother, uh, they were very open-minded. They believed in the universal teachings of the Quran. So they had us visit all the different houses of worship, uh, temples, uh, mm-hmm. churches, uh, other uh, places. And so we began to believe uh, what is very commonly known in the interfaith world at a very early age, that interfaith is not about conversion. It is about completion, becoming a more complete human being. So this feeling, this fragrance, you might say, I received from a very early age from my parents. Even in Bangladesh? Well, because my parents were diplomats, uh, Uh. they were traveling all over the world. So I've I've lived in various countries, for example, uh, Burma, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Canada, and Germany, other places. But I was lucky that my parents were posted, posted to two different countries when I was at a very formative age, uh, Iran and Turkey. Mm. These are the places where Rumi is very mm-hmm. highly revered. So I began to read and understand the Quran through the lens of Rumi poetry, uh-huh. And that evoked a lot of uh, spiritual awakening in me. Right. So your <clears throat> your family background was not Sufi. Yes, yes, it was uh, Sufi. Know, yes, you see, uh, Sufism is very misunderstood. Mm. Uh, Sufism is not a denomination, as many people um, uh, mistake it to be. Mm. Uh, Islam has two main branches: Sunni and Shia. And Sufism is simply an aspiration. It's a heartfelt aspiration to really longing to live the spirit of the tradition. So a Sufi can be uh, a Sunni or a Shia Muslim, Mm -hmm. but has a heartfelt 
aspiration to live the tradition rather than be enmeshed in all the rituals and theologies. Jamal, I wanted to ask you about your interfaith work. Uh, one yes. of the issues I have, and I wonder, uh, in Christianity, uh, in uh, Islam, they are both uh, religions that uh, focus on conversion. Uh, a Christian right. doctrine wants everyone to be a Christian. Uh, yes. Islamic doctrine, I believe, wants everyone to be Islam. Uh, and how, how does that work when it comes to uh, interfaith dialogue? If you come across, say, say, a Catholic priest and says, oh, I'm happy to work with you, but believe, but ultimately my goal is to make, <laughs> make everyone Christian. Uh, so so I, want, I wonder how that really yeah. ultimately can work. Yes, that's a very, that's a very, very good point you're mentioning. You see, uh, these are two evangelical religions, and the um, understanding is that uh, for us, me personally, uh, me working with Rabbi Ted Falcon and Pastor Don McKenzie, uh, we have a commitment not to focus on conversion. Mm -hmm. with the, the conversion we want to focus on and um, advocate is uh, in, in, be in becoming transformed into a more authentic human being. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is mostly by example rather than preaching. However, we know that both in Christianity and Islam, there is this concept of, you might vaguely call the good news. So, uh, you know, this is a much talked about topic. And... Uh, the feeling is that if you want to practice interfaith and you still believe in conversion, at least let us come up with an ethics of evangelism. Hmm. And while we do the interfaith work, the focus is not on conversion. Focus is really on coexisting, on really going deeper into our own tradition and practicing the universal values which are present in every single tradition. Love thy neighbor, uh, in Islam, for example, there are beautiful universal verses which says, if God wanted, God could have made all of us one single community. But God chose to create diversity so that we might come to know the other on a human level. So we focus on those universal verses. But you know, your question is very appropriate. Uh, there might be a secret agenda uh, in these interfaith dialogues. We make it very clear that is not our focus. Mm -hmm. uh, Jamal, um, it's a kind of timely, uh, it's timely that we have you on the show. Uh, we're recording this on January 5th, 2017. Um, in today's Los Angeles Times, coincidentally, the front page has a headline, that says, Muslims wait and worry as inauguration nears. Mm -hmm. Some fear Trump's tough rhetoric will inspire action. Um, what has your experience been uh, with this phenomenon, and um, are you concerned? Yes, I think I, uh, like most Muslims, and I should say not only Muslims, even my Jewish friends are very concerned, I would say uh, all the minorities are actually very concerned. The LGBTQ uh, groups also uh, are very concerned because uh, there has been a demonization 
uh, of these uh, particular groups. But if I may just come back to the uh, Muslim question you have asked, uh, yes, there is fear. There is no doubt, and there have been difficult instances. There have been there has been vandalism. There has been threats. But I should also add that uh, in almost every case where they, these have there have been these uh, terrible situations. There has been manyfold, many times more, actions of goodness by people that really has overpowered and subsumed uh, these difficult situations. So an act of vandalism, for example, recently at a mosque uh, in our area here uh, has been accompanied by outpouring of uh, not only sympathy, but actions to guard the mosque, uh, to really re reiterate and reinforce the need for coexistence. So yes, it is a difficult time, but it's also a time we, we see a lot of goodness coming out of people. So we are encouraged on the whole. <clears throat> Jamal, in your interfaith work, well, the subtitle of your book is The Interfaith Amigos Guide to Personal, Social, and Environmental Healing. Uh, who are the amigos that you uh, are part of, and how did you guys come to, to, to be... Uh, a working together unit. Yes, it, it happened after 9-11. Uh, rabbi Ted is a, a reform rabbi. Uh, he invited me just a day or two after 9-11 to do the Shabbat with him. And we became friends. And then we realized that, you know, we are cousins uh, of the same Abrahamic family, but a very, very, very dysfunctional Abrahamic family. <laughs> And we started doing a lot of interfaith work together, and we realized our third cousin was missing. That's where Pastor Don McKenzie, uh, United Church of Christ, uh, we invited him. And we started some work on the anniversary of 9-11, but we found out that we liked one another. And as the days and weeks and months went by, we became good friends, not just the three of us, also our families, our congregations, and that's when we realize the truth of what has become a mantra now, that to overcome any kind of polarization, the most essential key is to come to know the other on a human level. You know, what in uh, Central Asia we say, can we share three cups of tea? Listen, respect, and connect. So we had an experiential taste and understanding that once we became friends, Many beautiful things followed. No matter what our differences in theologies from our religions, now, because we are friends, it does not loom as a threat. And, and we realize that when we have that human connection, it becomes almost impossible to demonize the other. But most importantly, we found that once you have that bonding, it somehow creates the space where, in spite of any differences you have, you can join hands to focus on issues that are dear to all of our hearts, which are social justice issues and earth care. So this, is, this has been our mm -hmm. rallying cry. Please move beyond polarization. doesn't matter what area it is, it, it is in, religion, politics, culture, by really connecting on a human level, sharing human stories, and see what happens because we've had a personal experiential taste of that. Um, let's take that a step further, Jamal. You and um, Reverend McKenzie and Rabbi Falcon all live in Seattle. Uh, 
Uh, we, we used to. Uh, 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 Don McKenzie has recently moved to Minneapolis because uh-huh. that was his plan. Uh, when he would retire, he would do that. His family is from there. I see. But our work continues via cyberspace, Skype. Ah. Nothing has changed. That's <laughs> what I was going to ask you is, um, what is the work you do together? Do you, uh, you have a book um, that was uh, uh, your most recent book it was written together uh, uh, called Finding Peace Through Spiritual yes. Practice. Yes. Um, you... Um, do are you on the road together? And when you do public events, mm-hmm. um, what are they like? Good point. Well, well, first of all, we have three books. Uh, Getting to the Heart of Interfaith, that was the first one. Second one is called Religion Gone Astray. And this one, Finding Peace Through Spiritual Practice, is our third book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has given us uh, some media exposure. And so we get uh, continuously lots of invitations uh, from different states, from the churches, from seminaries, from uh, interfaith groups, uh, universities. So we are quite often on the road together. So that by itself has, has given us the opportunity to, to really experience this practice of getting to know the other, uh, you know, yeah. traveling, lodging, and uh, presenting together. So we have uh, uh, routines where we have uh, presentations, the three of us do it together, and we use humor. And we are, I would say we are known for having the courage to talk about that which is awkward and difficult in our conversation, in our, in our traditions. Mm. So we, we converse about that. For example, uh, we talk about the problem of exclusivity, violence, unequal status of women, homophobia, in each of our traditions. And we do it in a way that is frank, uh, that is, uh, we're willing to be vulnerable, and we bring some humor into it. That's our presentation. And then we, are, we also do workshops mm-hmm. about uh, connecting with the other, how can you connect on a human level, and what are some spiritual practices to deal with the issues of anger, of hate, mm-hmm. of fear, uh, of bewilderment within. Because we know that unless there is inner peace inside of us, uh, this will not translate into peace outside of us. Right. We have to do yeah. the inner work yeah. and, Jim, of course, the outer work. Jamal, let me follow up on that. Uh, you speak on Su- Sufi spirituality. Uh, what are some of the spiritual practices that you share with your audience? And uh, do, do your counterparts uh, uh, from, from the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition also have other spiritual practices that they share with the audience? Yes. Well, for example, we one, one topic we... Um, touch upon every time we get together is what is the essence of our tradition? What is the main teaching of our tradition? Of course, most of our uh, teachings, they overlap, but is there one particular teaching which you might say is emphasized quite uniquely? So uh, Ted says in the Jewish tradition, the concept of oneness, we're all one, that is emphasized in his tradition. Uh, Pastor Don says, in his tradition is the idea of unconditional love. In Islam, I say the essence of Islam, and this surprises many people, is the idea of compassion, compassion for self and compassion for others. Then we talk about some of the techniques, how we can get to attaining that consciousness. And of course, we say that at the core of it, we have to do the work where we transform our ego, open up our heart, 
so we can be of authentic service to God's creation. So, for example, in the Sufi, which just means spiritual side of Islam uh, tradition, uh, I quote Prophet Muhammad who says, you have to do this work, which is, know thyself and you shall know thy sustainer. Mm-hmm. Then he also said, die before you die. That is, die to your ego, to your false self, before you die a physical death. And the third thing is, open your heart. And there are many techniques to do that. Then you can be an authentic vice regent or a representative of God on earth. Interesting. Um, Jamal, speaking of being a representative of God, um, yes. there's a lot of, and I'm sure you're, you're constant, uh, constantly having to uh, correct people's misunderstandings about Islam. And, and the truth is most people in America and probably Europe um, have very little understanding of Islam, and what we do know is mostly post-9-11. Um, what are the most common misunderstandings that you have to address? Very good. Thank you for that question. Uh, first of all, two things I would say. One is that, uh, and this is a general point, every holy book has what is called particular verses and universal verses. Particular verses are in desperate need of historical and textual context. Universal verses are timeless, placeless, and filled with wisdom. The problem is we take a particular verse and advocate that as a universal verse. Mm. That is probably the biggest problem. Uh, Should I give you an example? Yes, please. For example, there's a verse, chapter 5, verse 51, where it says... Do not take the Jews and Christians as your friends and protectors because they're friends and protectors of each other. So many Muslims and non-Muslims use this verse to say, ah, see, uh, Muslims can never be friends with Jews and Christians. But we have to look at the historical context of this. This verse was revealed in the 7th century, when the Islamic community was a very tiny, embryonic, nascent community, surrounded by enemies on all sides, and for survival, it had military treaties with Jewish and Christian tribes. And according to Muslims, these particular tribes, this verse is referring to, at the height of battle would break their treaties depending on how the battle was going. So this verse is addressed in that 7th century Arabia, in that particular time, under those historical circumstances when military treaties were being broken. It is not a blanket condemnation of Jews and Christians, because also, just if 18 verses below, chapter 5, verse 69, there is a universal verse, which says, it doesn't matter what your religion is, whether you are Jewish Christian, Sabian, Muslim, what takes you to heaven is having faith in God, but particularly doing righteous deeds. So this is emphasizing the Quran again and again, that what takes you to heaven is righteous deeds. So this differentiation, Mm -hmm. without this discernment, it becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. The other area where the question (laughs) is asked is always about jihad. Yes. And jihad again is a very misunderstood word for a non-Muslim, it evokes fear, justifiably. 
because of the behavior of uh, some political extremist groups. But for me, because of my background, when you say jihad, it evokes a sense of sacredness. Why? Because for me, it's a very, it's a very uh, sacred word because the word means exertion, effort. And 90% of jihad is about making the exertion to become a better human being. The work involved in transforming the ego and opening up the heart. And then the work involved in being just, in having good relations with your spouse, with your uh, neighbors, uh, in doing good work. And a small, tiny portion of jihad is to defend yourself if you are attacked. And I'll give you the exact verse about that from the Quran. It says, fight in the way of God those who fight you, but begin not hostilities, for God loves not the aggressors. Mm. It goes on to say, and if the enemy wants to make peace, you must immediately lay down your arms and go for peace. Unfortunately, because of the political situation, because of this uh, difficult alliances, global interests, and fighting and violence, uh, jihad has been equated with holy war. And I should tell you, there is not even one single mention of jihad as holy war in the Quran. Mm. Uh, Jamal, do you think that the Islamic community in America is doing enough to educate non-Islamic Americans uh, about the things that you talk about? And if they're not, what could they be doing to uh, get, get this message across uh, more clearly and to more people? You see, uh, I think uh, Muslims are beginning to really uh, connect, number one, uh, then explain and uh, clarify some of the misunderstandings. But what is uh, very difficult is all of this becomes very colored by the political troubles and mm -hmm. difficulties overseas. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yes, there are, of course, there, there exists religious extremists. But then, because of the political situation and the warfare, uh, the, the killings, the violence, religion is being used to justify that, to justify what really is a fight over economics and politics. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a verse in, among Islamic spiritual teachers. We're looking among the leaves and branches for what appears in the roots. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is religious extremism, but the roots of it really is a terrible fight over economics and politics. Mm. And would you, would you put territory in that uh, category? Oh, yes, territory, oil, I would say, is a very big one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Resource, sure. Resources, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, influence, uh, geopolitical interests, yeah. uh, and all these uh, age-old artificial divisions of countries during the times of colonization. All that now is, you know, coming to bear in terms of these are artificial, and you have fightings over old, old feuds, created by these artificial borders. Mm -hmm. um, Jamal, a few questions about Islam and um, uh, that people uh, may be interested in learning sure. about. One is, is um, what is an imam? How does one become an imam? And how does it differ from uh, 
Well, from a rabbi or a minister to to cite your amigos. Yes. You know, uh, these are very good questions because these are very, very misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Uh, In theory, we have no equivalent of a rabbi or minister, generally speaking, in the Islamic tradition, because Islam says between uh, humanity and God, there is no intermediary. Mm -hmm. So there is no religious ordination in Islam. Anybody can become an imam. Uh, if you follow me, this is, this is a very difficult and, uh, and uh, intricate concept to explain. So after 9-11, a cry came out, where are the Islamic clerics? Why aren't they shouting out? Mm-hmm. The, the, the point is, again, misunderstood, or very hard to understand, we don't have uh, clerics in Islam. Mm. Anybody can become an imam. So, for example, if a mosque is built, the financiers of the mosque, they choose someone, anybody they want can become an imam. Hmm. We don't have religious ordination. However, uh, they usually, uh, not always, choose a person who is pious and who has some knowledge of, uh, mm-hmm. of the holy mm-hmm. book. For example, Rumi was an imam, mm. that uh, wonderful uh, sage. Now, this becomes even more complicated because, (laughs) you know, we have Shia and Sunni. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Uh, 85% of Muslims are Sunnis. 15% of of Muslims are Shia. In the 15% of Muslims in the world, in the last two, three centuries, there has been a change about imams, meaning to become an imam, you have to go through in the Shia tradition of Islam, in that denomination, you have to go through a very, very prolonged and rigorous course of studies. And if you finish that, you become an ayatollah, which means a sign of God. Mm-hmm. So it's different, has become different now in the Shia tradition uh-huh. uh, compared to the Sunni tradition. So, but overall, to become an imam, you don't have to go through a religious uh, schooling. Mm-hmm. However, after 9-11, that is changing in America now. Uh-huh. So, for example, in Claremont, you have this school, you have in Hartford Seminary, uh, you've had this uh, uh, curriculum where to become an imam or a chaplain particularly, you have to go through a standardized, regular course of studies. I am an imam. My training has come mostly from my parents and from the teachers they chose to send me to in the Sufi tradition. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, do you have a... So you do not have a particular, uh, uh, t- uh, you know, a mosque that you uh, attend to or you are sort of uh, take care of the parishioners of that mosque like your uh, Christian or Jewish counterparts would uh, in their uh, uh, church and synagogue? No, I, I, no we, 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 have, we actually we own a church building, the oldest church building in, uh, in mm-hmm. um, Seattle. Uh, but we have we have named it Interfaith Community Sanctuary. No, no. But my my question and, is more: you, an iman, uh, unlike a priest or a minister or a rabbi, doesn't necessarily have a particular uh, uh, mosque that they are, are responsible to the people that attend that mosque. No, they are. It's the the, the okay. financiers, the ones who build the mosque. They appoint an imam. Okay. They appoint somebody as imam. I and see. in the past, it used to be just somebody who was a prayer leader. 
But now mm-hmm. uh, they're finding out that they have to be the equivalent of a rabbi and minister. They have to do counseling. They have to do all kinds of other, uh, you know, uh, works like uh, you know attending funerals, births, mm-hmm. deaths. Uh, they're responsible for many other activities. So now they begin to get training in that. Interesting. Um, welcome to the institutionalization process. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jamal, um, people are familiar with the uh, Muslim uh, ritual or custom of uh, five times a day prayer at at certain times. Can you explain what actually uh, an observant uh, Muslim does during those five Yes. Period. Very, yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, well, you know, uh, maybe it's better understood, illuminated if I tell you uh, how it started. Why do Muslims do, why, why did they use the body to express their prayer? Mm. The traditional story is that uh, during Prophet Muhammad's night journey, this is a, a meditative state the Prophet was engaged in, mentioned in the Quran, when the prophet had either an actual experience or a meditative vision of ascending seven levels of heaven. Some say that's where the term, I mean, seventh heaven comes from. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. But as he began to ascend seven levels of heaven, uh, tradition says that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he saw angels bowing and prostrating and thanking God and praising God. From that, the Prophet Muhammad got the idea that an essential prayer should consist of simply praising God and thanking God and using the gift of a body to express this adoration. So that's how he got that idea. Mm-hmm. Then tradition has it as he was descending seven levels of heaven, he met Moses who asked him, among other things, what did you talk to divinity about? Or that uh, unexplainable, inconceivable uh, entity or energy up there. And Prophet Muhammad said, I was asked that, I was told that our community must pray 50 times a day. Moses said, you know, I know our community. They I'll will never pray discount. 50 times a day. Mm. Beg your pardon? I'll give yes, you yeah, a go back. Yeah, go back and bar- bargain for a lesser number. <laughs> so he went back and forth, back and forth with the encouragement of Prophet Moses, and finally number was fixed at five. <laughs> and uh, the Jew got how, in there to negotiate. Right, right. That's right. That's what we say. It was because of this interfaith encounter. And so, so uh, Sunnis pray f- uh, the, the, five times a day, the five obligatory prayers. Shia pray three times a day, uh-huh. covering the same five obligatory prayers. And there's a very beautiful insight which comes from all of this, which says one prostration of prayer to God liberates you frees you from a thousand prostrations to your ego. Mm-hmm. Ah. Interesting. Uh, Jamal, I have one final question for you from my side, and that is, uh, amongst the Shia and Sunni, uh, is Sufism, Sufi spirituality, is that commonly accepted? Depends. Uh, it used to be, you know, Sufism has always been the heart of Islam. And uh, in most parts of the world where Islam is practiced, you see, in the Arab countries, you know, Arab countries constitute only 12 to 15% of the Islamic population. Mm-hmm. 
the bulk of Muslims live in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there, Islam was spread mostly to the work of Sufis. And everybody accepts that. So uh, today, because of political difficulties in some very conservative countries like Saudi Arabia uh, and a couple of other Arab countries, they're very angry at Sufis. They say, you made our hearts very soft. Mm. And that is why we are no longer in a global dominant position. Because for a thousand years since 7th century, uh, just like Christianity is a dominant religion, a dominant power, Islam used to be a dominant religion and dominant power. But, of course, it's very different today. And so Sufis are accused of softening people's hearts. (laughs) But actually, I would say Sufism is at the heart of Islam. And what will regain the essential beauty of Islam is really to Islamic spirituality. Mm. Today, you hear that Many people are converting to Islam. I don't know if you uh, hear that anecdotally that, well, we know from the Pew Research is the fastest growing religion and that uh, uh, in the West, uh, it's, people are converting to Islam in greater numbers than any other religion. And the question is, why? From my experience, when I ask these people, what, in, what attracts you to Islam? They say it's the spirituality mm. uh, in Islam. And Islam means as I understand it, uh, one of the origins of the term itself has been translated as submission. Yes. Uh, it means, you, actually, it means to surrender to, to God surrender. in peace. Yeah. But the question to ask is, what are you surrendering? If you read the Quran deeply, it is about surrendering your attachment to your ego mm-hmm. so that you can bring a heart, as the Quran says, a heart turned in devotion to God. You see, Sufism is not concerned about conversion. Right. Sufism is just concerned about transformation of the human being. Excellent. Um, Jamal, uh, we live in a very pluralistic society here in America. Uh, Is there any opportunity you see for expanding your amigos to include Swami or Roshi or a Lama? Absolutely. You know, for example, you know, my favorite religion after Islam, because I, mean, I was born in Islam, if you were to ask me, okay, besides Islam, what other religion would you, you love very much? I would say for me, it's Buddhism. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Ted was asked the same question, and surprisingly, on, on the TV, he was saying Buddhism also. So it's not that we don't want to include them, it's just that it's so evolved that we three became friends, yeah, that's number yeah. one. And number two, we also mm-hmm. found that the biggest problems are with these monotheistic traditions. Yeah, yeah. right. It's if a you very get, dysfunctional family. If you get a Buddhist, you could call yourself the Four Horsemen. Change uh, <laughs> the name like that. Uh, Jamal, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time uh, to come on today with us. Phil, any final uh, questions or thoughts? No, I would uh, ask uh, Jamal uh, for any final words for our audience and um, if there's any uh, way they can find out more about you and the Amigos. Well, we have... Uh, uh, website interfaithamigos.com. Okay. We'll post that up. And then right. our, yeah, and then we also have uh, interfaithcommunitysanctuary.org. And any final words for our listeners? 
You know, I would say the key is uh, two things are the key. One is we have to keep on doing the inner work of becoming, of evolving into the fullness of our being. And the second thing is, may we share three cups of tea, listen, respect, connect. In other words, just connect with the other on a human level. That's our greatest work that really challenges our creativity and our inner work of being a, a humble and sincere person aspiring to sincerely without any secret agenda to connect with the other because the other is sacred. Thank you, Jamal. Thank you for connecting with us. Thank you. My very honor much. and privilege. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye-bye.